the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We have been looking at these verses, putting wisdom under a microscope to observe it and to see its behavior. What we want to do this morning is uh, kind of cap this all off. We've seen something of the behavior of wisdom. Wisdom has habits, what we have called virtues. We're going to talk about this more in a moment, review that. Uh, Virtues like prudence and discretion. Wisdom is always learning. Wisdom has... um, uh, it receives a kind of DNA that tells it what to do, tells you what to do in certain situations. What we want to see this morning is wisdom is always growing. Wisdom is not so much an end result. It is a process that God has laid out for us, a process of growth, of deepening in knowledge and deepening in our understanding and walk with the Lord. We want to focus on the idea of growing in wisdom this morning. Um, And I want to do it from this point of view. A lot of times what stops us from growing is our view of the final product. We, We have a certain picture in our heads. This is what a wise person looks like. This is what a good church looks like. This is what a godly person is, what a godly person does. The assumptions that we bring to those final product pictures can stop us from growing and can stop us from receiving all of the broadening, deepening goodness and wisdom that God has for us. I went through a process a number of years ago Um, with uh, my colleagues out in Orland, we wanted to start a ministry to Latinos. And it was a significant burden on uh, my heart, the heart of the elders at that time, my colleague uh, named Walt McCann. And uh, he and I spent a lot of time trying to find the right pastor to lead a ministry to Latinos, and by the way, this is still a major burden on my heart, as yet unfulfilled. Um, and, but we committed a lot of time to this. We went down to Southern California and, and started to interview uh, some potential pastors to lead this kind of a ministry. And frankly, I don't think ministry is serious in this area, in this state, or in this region, in this town, unless it is multiracial. And unless it crosses language barriers. And so this is a, a very significant thing. But one of the things that Walt and I said as we went down there, basically we just said, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know the first thing about how to do this. And so what part of what we're looking for is just growth in our own understanding of what a Latino ministry would look like. Because we don't know. I mean, if... If you ask me today, what would a Latino ministry look like? It it might have any number of pictures to it, but at that time, at the beginning of this process, the end result for me was our church with Latinos in it. That's what it looked like. Well, that's a pretty narrow and frankly 
not very bright vision of what that could be. So we wanted to, to go down and talk to people and, and just kind of bust that open. Forget about what we think the final product is. Let's look at what Latino ministry really is and how it really works. So we, we contacted a man, and this was the most amazing evening we ever spent because of how, how really it filled us with dismay. I'll tell you why. We contacted a potential pastor of, uh, of Latino ministries, and, and he was serving in a church, and the white guy who was on the elder board of that church put us in touch with him and did much more than that. He came to the dinner where we uh, took this young man and even went further than that in showing his interest in our project. He did all the talking. And we were trying to interview the guy who actually knows what Latino ministry is about. And we couldn't do it because the white guy was talking the whole time. So Walt and I kind of went back to the hotel room and said, I think we need to try this again. Let's ditch the white guy and just talk with the Latino guy. So fortunately, we, we had gotten his phone number, so we just called him up and said, hey, let's, uh, I don't care what you have to do, sneak away, whatever it needs to happen here, but let's meet again and let's actually talk. He came up to Orland and visited our, our church. And I, this is, was so eye-opening because the questions he would ask uh, just completely opened our eyes to what was possible for Latino ministry. You see what, what we're doing here? We're junking what we think the end result should be, what that's supposed to look like in the picture in our heads. And we're just saying... Lead, Lord. Bring us to the people who can expand our vision for what this could be. And so, uh, you know, he would ask us questions like, uh, are you talking about first, second, or third generation Latinos? Uh, we really hadn't thought about that. Are you talking about Spanish-speaking ministry or English-speaking ministry? Oh, well, we were assuming Spanish. Well, that's kind of back to the first, second, or third generation thing. And are, are you talking about a separate church? Are you talking about a Sunday school class? Are you talking about two churches that eventually integrate? We, I don't know. We hadn't thought about that. Well, that's why we went down there to talk to the guy who knows what he's doing as opposed to us. We don't know what we're doing. Wisdom is about increasing. It's about growing. It's about deepening. It's about taking blinders off and understanding that what God has for us is bigger and better, and more dynamic. Frankly, if I go through a week without two or three conversations that take my blinders off and, and grow my thinking in an area, 
If I have a week that goes by without two or three of those conversations, it's a bad week. This last week is a very good week. I had lots of those conversations because I have learned to love growing. And what uh, Solomon describes here is wisdom that grows. Let's look at this. We're going to uh, take some time to look at the principle, first of all, that um, really the, the, one of the first steps in wisdom is accepting that wisdom is the process of growth that God has designed it. It's not the end product. It's not the perfect person matching everything you think the godly person is supposed to be. It's a person in process, and once we accept that, we have begun the process of growing in wisdom. So we're going to look at this principle uh, and uh, look at it from the first seven verses uh, of uh, Proverbs chapter 1. Then we're going to look at an example of this from the scriptures, from the life of David, and we'll end with some evaluation questions for ourselves. So let's dive in here. The principle we're looking at here is that wisdom has growth built in. Wisdom has increase, fruitfulness, and deepening fruitfulness built into it. Put it differently, if you're not growing, you're not wise. If you're not deepening, whatever you've got is not wisdom. It may be a kind of mental sclerosis, a kind of hardening of your thinking, and, and of assumptions and prejudices. That may be what you've got, and that might feel very good, but that's not what we're talking about in Proverbs chapter 1. Wisdom has growth and increase built in. So how does it do this? Let's go back to that word that we introduced some time ago, virtues. Look at verse 4. One of the purposes of the book of Proverbs is to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Remember when we talked about the behavior of wisdom under the microscope, we said it has habits. And these habits are patterns of behavior over long periods of time, built up over long periods of time. And the word we have for that is the word virtue. And in particular... Proverbs is concerned with virtues of the mind, and prudence, we said, is one of those. Prudence looks down the road, anticipates problems. Prudence also anticipates opportunities. And, and in anticipating all of that, prudence says, we have time before we hit that point in the road. Let's see what we can do about those challenges. Let's see what we can do to grasp those opportunities. So prudence is looking at the horizon down the road, anticipating what might come. Another uh, word for this would be foresight. So we talked about this, and we said... Um, the object of Proverbs is not to give you a worksheet with 37 problems on it, and you have to do every one of those problems correctly or you fail. That's not Proverbs. Proverbs is saying, do all the problems, 
develop the habits of solving these problems, get, in, get this drilled into your mind. You don't have to make every decision right. Your job is to build the habits that make right decisions. And over time, you acquire these virtues more and more. You grow in them. So how do the simple learn prudence? Well, they aren't just given it. They aren't just told what to do. When I uh, was a child and had to learn things, I wasn't just told this is how you do this, and then the parent walks away and, and we're done. No, you have, to, you have to stumble a little while you're learning to walk, and you have to learn how this one foot in front of the other thing goes. And you have to learn partially by falling down and skinning your knee a lot or bonking your head on the furniture, whatever it may be. It's a process. So how would the simple gain prudence? Well, Solomon is saying, the more you read Proverbs, the more your eyes fix down the road. And you start looking for things you weren't looking for before. And you realize that decision I made back there went wrong because it was impulsive. I wasn't prudent in assessing the situation I was walking into. I agreed to car payments that were larger than I could really pay month to month. And that's how I got into this situation. Or I put something on the credit card, and instead of waiting, saving up cash, now I've paid three times as much as I needed to because the interest piled up. These kinds of things, we learn prudence in a process. And the concept of God behind these kinds of virtues is a concept of God as a teacher. God is not sitting there with a button to zap you every time you get a problem wrong on the worksheet. God is saying, just do the worksheet. Do life. Do these drills. Gain these virtues, and we will build wisdom into you over time. So that's the first thing that we need to review here from what we've covered before that uh, Proverbs is about the formation of these virtues in your life. Second thing, in order to form those virtues, we have to be constantly learning. In fact, learning is one of the, the intellectual virtues that Proverbs talks about. And um, so if we look here at uh, verses 2 and 3, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. In other words, Proverbs is designed to open you up so that you learn and that you increase in your stock of knowledge, your stock of, of little alarm bells saying danger, and your stock of, of little other kinds of alarms saying opportunity. And you need to increase in, in all of these uh, kinds of things that you learn. Proverbs is about learning. One of the things that I loved in interviewing uh, all sorts of uh, men and, and sometimes training men for Latino ministry 
Uh, I wasn't training them in Latino ministry. I was training them in what I knew of the scriptures and, and what I knew of preaching. And at the same time, they were training me in a community I did not know well and still don't know well. And so one guy I spent many hours with was a fellow named Augie. He was a, a pastor in uh, Hamilton City. And he opened my eyes to all kinds of things and helped me to see the community I was already living in in a totally different way. And I found myself just in talking to him, learning. I learned all kinds of things about differences in perspective between Latinos. He explained to me that there were Sudanios and Nortenos, and I may be messing this up because it's been a long time since I've talked to him, and how it was different in Orland than it was in Hamilton City. There were different kinds of priorities. There were different kinds of, of identities. There were different kinds of gangs that you could belong to. One of the things that he told me was that because he is a pastor, he could go between these gangs. And nobody would touch him. Nobody would worry about who he was or which side he was on because he would say, El Pastor. I'm El Pastor. I kind of liked the sound of that, El Pastor. It sounds much more impressive than just, you know, in English. So um, he opened my eyes to a lot of these things. And as I began learning about this, it affected the way we were thinking about Latino ministry. You can't just charge in and expect everybody to get along if they're coming from two different camps. You can't just um, think of this as a language barrier alone. It's not that. It's much more complicated than that. And part of respecting people and where they're coming from is knowing some of the complexity that they're coming from and not just reducing them to little tiny boxes. What I'm saying to us is wisdom may not be white. This is huge. Because if that's true, and I think it is true, that's true then the growth in wisdom for Latino Christians is going to look different than it is for white people or for black people or whatever it may be. We have to open ourselves up to the understanding that God is at work in all of these communities and in different ways. Uh, you've, you've seen pictures of um, stone churches in India or Africa where the, the early missions movement was as much about westernizing different parts of the world as it was about teaching them the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. And uh, so there, there are all kinds of things that missions uh, agencies and missionaries have learned about the way wisdom looks in different parts of the world, in different language groups, among different people. And part of what I hope you will see from this is that Proverbs was designed to help us grow in all of these ways. And 
as we talk about growth, we're not saying grow into an upper middle class white person. We are talking about growing into the person God designed you to be. And in growing you into that person and growing you beyond that person, that all of a sudden his kingdom looks richer, deeper, wider, and more powerful because of it, and he gets more glory from that. So these are some of the issues that I think are a part of growing in wisdom and some of the reasons why Proverbs makes such a priority of learning, deepening, broadening, and developing these virtues. You see why I keep saying wisdom has growth built in. If your wisdom is shutting you down as a person, biblically, it is not wisdom. Whatever it is, It is not wisdom. Let me come at this from an even different point of view. We often pit truth and love against each other. And we we say we need them both. And in this context, we would say you need to have grace toward people who are different from you while you are growing in wisdom. Because you can get so full of wisdom that you can lose the grace. Solomon would come right back at us and say, what are you talking about? If you're not growing, you don't have wisdom at all. Isn't that true? How many times we make fools of ourselves because we thought we knew in advance what was needed, what the final product was supposed to look like. We charged in And we were wrong. Uh, So, Proverbs is about this kind of growth, and it says this explicitly. Verse 5. Let the wise hear and what? Increase in learning. Hang on, Solomon. If they're wise already... They don't need to learn something more. They need to teach their wisdom to all of the other people who are not wise, right? Because they have hit that point, if you're calling them wise, they have become the picture in my head of a wise person. And having matched that picture, they now need to tell everybody else how to match that picture, right? And Solomon says, no. No, that's not what the wise need to do. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. In other words, the wise person is growing or he or she is not wise. He says it again just for emphasis. And the one who understands, let him obtain guidance Let her obtain guidance. Well, wait a minute. If she understands already, then she doesn't need guidance, does she? Solomon says, no, she does. The purpose of her understanding is to receive guidance. Because no matter how much she knows, no matter how much he knows, they don't know it all. 
And that is why verse 7 is here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, because uh, to put it simply, he's bigger than I am. He knows more. He takes in more territory. He's older by quite a lot. (laughs) And because of that, I need to put his word, his knowledge, his design for life ahead of mine. And I need to be willing to say, I don't know the final picture. He does. I'm following him. Because his final picture is perfect. It is the ultimate completion of all things in Jesus Christ. So what are we really talking about here uh, when we talk about wisdom? What are we really talking about when we say wisdom, when you look at under a microscope, is constantly growing, it's multiplying, it's, it's, it's constantly increasing. We're really saying our hearts change under the wisdom of God. In other words, Solomon in the book of Proverbs in the heart of the Old Testament is preaching the gospel to us. And it is saying your life in Jesus Christ is designed to soften your heart, grow you as a person, and deepen your knowledge and understanding. So, That's something of the principle that wisdom has growth built in. And a first step toward wisdom is just accepting that wisdom is a process, not a final product, at least in this life. So having seen that principle, let's look at an example of this. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 24. We're going to blitz through three lengthy chapters in 1 Samuel in about the next 10 minutes. You're laughing because you don't believe I will do it. No, Pastor, you're not capable of doing it that fast. I am. I'll show you. Yeah, we'll see. No trust here. No confidence. Okay. First Samuel chapter 24. This is David when he is on the run from King Saul. Long story short, David is being pursued by Saul and Saul is trying to kill him. And Saul has a whole army pursuing David in the wilderness trying to locate him. Saul goes into a cave in the middle of the uh, wilderness in Judah. And he, he goes into this cave, uh, to put it nicely, as, as if it were using the facilities. He goes back into this cave, and who's back there inside this cave but David and all his men. Now, if Saul had read The Lord of the Rings... He would know not to go into caves because maybe there's orcs back there. But he hadn't read this, so uh, so he makes this uh, kind of simple mistake. Uh, so he's in this cave, and uh, 
David and his men have a little conversation about this because Saul is right there in their hands and David can take him out in that moment. And his men encourage him to do that. And I want you to look at verses 6 and 7. This is David's reply to his men as they encourage him, kill Saul. It's in self-defense. The Lord's given him into your hand. This is your big opportunity. Let's end this. Verse 6, David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to do that. God set him up as king. And it is not for me to decide to assassinate the king here in this cave. That is not on the table for me. God did not appoint me to that purpose. Now there's a principle there. The principle is... is one that David has learned at some cost to himself and to the others around him. He has learned, the Lord will take care of me. The Lord will protect me. The Lord will deal with Saul. I don't have to. David has learned this so well that his motley crew of men, when they want him to end this right now, David says, no. Verse 7, David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David confronts Saul about this and says, I just had you in my hands and I did not kill you. What you believe about me is false. I just proved it. Um, so that happens. You say, well, great. David is obviously a very wise and godly man. And it's, uh, it's very good that he knows this. And uh, so we ought to know this too. We ought to emulate him and be wise and godly. Well, that would be a misunderstanding of why 1 Samuel is telling this story. Because in the very next chapter, we get another story about David and a completely different character named Nabal. In this story, notice the chronicler puts David having a good solid principle in one chapter and immediately tells us the very next story. In the very next story, this man Nabal, which means fool, by the way, that's probably, <laughs> that's probably the biblical writer by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, let me just, all cards on the table here, this man was Nabal. He was a fool. It's not like he was born and his mother said, ah, fool, that is your name. That's probably not what happened here. Um, nevertheless, this man is a terrible fool because David has been taking care of his stuff, his flocks, and his herdsmen. And David has been watching over these people, protecting them, providing for them for all kinds of time while he's been in the wilderness. And he's been doing good by this man. So he sends messengers to Nabal and says, your turn. Will you replenish my supplies? Will you be hospitable to me? Nabal fires back, I don't know who you are. I don't know who these guys are. I'm not going to supply your stuff because I know you're just rebelling against King Saul. 
And that's the way it is with these young people these days. So he says this and uh, sends David's messengers back to him with empty hands. Verse 13, David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. This is not going to go well. David's dangerous. He knows how to kill people. He's good at it. He has every intention of sweeping into this man's household and massacring the whole place. Why? Because Nabal has leveled against him an unbelievable insult. Now think about this. Chapter 24, Saul's trying to kill him, and David on the principle, the Lord will take care of me, lets Saul go. Chapter 25, a fool insults him. He says, get your swords. We're going to take them out. Where did that principle go? What happened, David? You already knew this. I understand no one in this room has ever done something like this. But we can see here that David has actually learned something, applied it, he's gotten it through his thick skull, and then he immediately forgets it under the, the kind of punishing um, uh, persecution of a fool in his folly. So there's this woman, the wife of Nabal, Abigail, long story short, she heads David off at the pass. She takes all of Nabal's stuff, her husband's stuff, resupplies David, and says to David, I just want to pick this up, verse 29. This is Abigail talking to David in the middle of the road. If men rise up to pursue you, chapter 25, verse 29, and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living. In the care of the Lord your God, what is she saying to him? God will protect you, even though men are seeking your life. She's saying to him what he already knows, but has forgotten. And the lives of your enemies, God shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And it is not an accident that she uses the image of God firing a sling to the guy who was famous for taking down Goliath with a sling and five stones and a stone. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, see, she knows all of this, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. This is wisdom, literally heading David off at the pass and saying, don't do this because the Lord will take care of you, which you already know. Here is David's response, verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day 
to meet me. Where's she coming from? God, according to David. Blessed be your, what? Your intellectual virtue, Abigail. Your long habit of discretion, which you have built up over time. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt murder and from avenging myself with my own hand. He's restored. Solomon says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. David was wise. He forgot what he learned. Abigail shows up, reteaches it to him. He learns it again, and he increases in his wisdom. You know what the, the writer of 1 Samuel is doing as he narrates this story? Throwing a party. He's saying, this is what wisdom is. It's learning something, forgetting it, learning it again, forgetting it again, being reminded of it, picking it back up, learning it in a fresh way, in a new situation, in a new point of view. If this describes you, you know what God is saying about you? You are wise because you're growing. I hope that's good news. Verse 20, chapter 26, it's David and Saul again. Exactly the same situation as in chapter 24. Why do they need to repeat this story? We already, we already saw how David released Saul. What this chronicler is saying is David's back on track. So uh, Saul and his whole army is asleep. And the, the Lord has laid a deep sleep over the whole camp. David could walk in, wipe out all of his enemies at one stroke. In fact, Abishai, one of the hotheads in his group, uh, goes down into the camp with David. And in verse 8, Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me Pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike twice. I only need one shot at this. Verse 9, David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And he continues, verse 10, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him down, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, and so forth. And he confronts Saul again, saying, I don't want to kill you. I could have done it again. What is this saying? The chronicler of 1 Samuel is saying to us, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the wise are in process. The fools are stuck. The wise grow. The fools just kind of repeat what they already know. And they never deepen their understanding of who the Lord is. This is now from two different points of view, one by example from 1 Samuel, the other by precept or command from Proverbs. Grow. Make it the purpose of your life. 
to deepen and increase in learning? Here are a couple of questions to evaluate that. First, what have you already learned from the Lord? Think of something where you have already experienced the grace of God, the protection, provision of God. You've already seen this. And you could kind of rest on your laurels and say, well, you know, I've learned that. I've experienced that. I guess I'm wise now. Second question. Where are you not applying what you've already learned in fresh situations? Where have you seen the provision of God in the past, but you're not applying what you've already seen in the new situation today or tomorrow or this week? Proverbs is saying that's where wisdom happens. It's when you take these simple things, you keep relearning them. You sink your roots deeper into them. Your heart gets softer under the commands of God and your, your discretion and understanding grows by the examples of wisdom in the scriptures. So you can use these two questions to kind of evaluate your understanding of this. To wrap this up, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This means, one, God is bigger than us. He's older, he knows more, and his plans are perfect. But it also means that the wise begin again and again and again. They get back to the fear of the Lord and they start again. The roots go deeper. They come back to the fear of the Lord the next day. The branches grow again because they have started over today. This is the gospel, friends. This is how God works in your heart because you, if you believe in him, you have his Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ, the wisdom of God at work in your heart and mind. It is changing you. It is growing you. And the word of God says, Glory to God, you have wisdom. Don't leave that path. Okay, phone lit up here a couple of times. So let's look at um, what we've got. Okay, so you're saying that wisdom inherently has built into it the process for breaking, destroying the interim patterns, habits, behaviors that it developed along the way, creative destruction, as they say. Are you saying wisdom is building, breaking, building, breaking, can't put new wine in old wineskins? Great question. Um, yes, I am saying that. Here's the thing. In what I have learned in the past, if I rest on that and do not, if I do not have today a living, growing, vital thing from that, then I have a dead thing, an inanimate thing, something with no life, and it's frozen in place, and I put it on the shelf and I admire it from across the room, 
and maybe a couple every other week or so I come and dust it off maybe polish it up um, that thing is dead the trophies that we have of having gained wisdom in the past are dead unless what hardens them is kind of broken up turned back into soil and and brought to life again now this doesn't mean that um, I mean what what's not true about the creative destruction thing is uh, that that God goes back over what he taught you in the past and and breaks it up and says no that was invalid for today it doesn't matter anymore that was in the past that's a dead thing that's that's not what we're saying we're saying it's got to live and in order to live it can't be frozen in a cryogenic state is that what they call that when the Elon Musk wants to freeze himself in a cryogenic state uh, so that they can unfreeze him and cure his cancer in 200 years. We, we can't do this to the lessons that we have learned. We've got to say, glory to God for his faithfulness in the past. If God is alive today. I'm going to face new things today. I'm going to face new things tomorrow. And so I'm going to look at all of those memorials of things in the past, and I'm going to say, what is living right now? What do I need to trust the Lord for right now? And if that means breaking up some of the pride, sense of accomplishment, the sense of having arrived, so be it. Maybe I'm just saying this. Wisdom with growth built in is willing to destroy our trophies. Maybe that's a better way to put this. I'm kind of thinking this through uh, as as I go along, but um, that's that's my take on this. Um, we can't just live uh, in the past as if the past is still living. Past is over. It can serve as reminders, but uh, nevertheless, Re- redirecting thoughts on what a test is for: is it for a grade? Is it for judgment? Is it to grow our understanding of how things can or may be done? Uh, Okay, Karate Kid, wax on, wax off, or is it the other way? I don't know. Uh, He didn't get a grade out of that. What did did he get out of that? Um, That's what God is doing. Um, He is, through repeated exercises in his ways and in trusting him, he's giving us karate. And it's like wax on, wax off while we're doing it. But you're learning those reflexes of trusting the Lord when crisis hits. And when we talk about the spirit taking over and leading, giving you the peace that passes understanding, what is that from? It's the wax on, wax off of repeatedly gaining those godly reflexes, those virtues Uh, of trusting him, the virtues of prudence and discretion and all of those things. So it's not for a grade, it's for a virtue. Um, Very good questions. David's example, 12 minutes, 32 seconds. So, yeah, I overshot it. (laughs) That's from Bridget, by the way. 
said, I can't get away with anything in this place. You don't trust me, and it's, it's so much so, you put your timers on when I'm... I meant it poetically. Ten minutes, more or less. Is it wisdom to put a time limit on yourself when sharing God's wisdom, even knowing your capabilities? Smart Alec. Is that you, Richard? Uh, no, it's not wise. It's um, because who knows what God will do in that uh, over, you know, that two minutes that I went over could have changed your heart. And uh, at least that's my story and I'm sticking to it. But still, three chapters in 12 minutes, that's impressive, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that for sure. Seems like King David had amazingly keen insight to be able to discern what the right course of action was regards Saul, especially when a deep sleep was put on the entire camp. How do we discern the right course when circumstances seem to point us in different directions? Oh, that's good. That's very well phrased. And it tees me up to say this. You don't decide it on circumstances. You're not looking for signs. You're not looking for, if, if I can put it this way, you're not looking for a word from the Lord when you've already got one. David's already got it. Do not kill the king. That is not your role here, David. I set up the king. David internalizes that so that he makes his decisions in these blurry circumstances and his men with reference to the circumstances are telling him to do wrong. And he already knows what to do. He says, I will not do this. In other words, um, wisdom is not spoon-fed to us in the moment by God. I say is not. He does that. I, he can do anything he wants. He has saved me in the moment from many mistakes. But his rule in dealing with us, walking by the Holy Spirit in the normal of life, it's wax on, wax off. And it's our job to internalize these things, and then the Holy Spirit takes over. And the circumstances do not look so blurry as they might be, especially when you've got a crowd of criminals at your back saying, no, we really mean it. Kill him. And it's your job to say, no, I'm not doing it. And I'm standing here, and I'm going to prevent you from doing it. So this distinction between making decisions based on circumstances, well, it's an open door. Sorry, David had that argument. He did. Or it's, oh, the door closed. There are times when we are called to beat down the doors that have closed or to go around them and find another way in and to persevere. And what tells us when to make those kinds of decisions? God's word, his principles, and the virtues of prudence, discretion, 
and learning his ways.